Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. I'm Ryan, being joined by Andre. Uh, and Andre, we're doing this virtually, even though you were just in Washington, D.C. We were just had two fabulous days at the Aspen Security Forum, and now you're back in San Diego. We absolutely did. We got a lot of great Polisite interviews at Aspen. Uh, some we've released, some we have not yet released. Uh, Please keep on the lookout for an audio episode that we will be releasing soon, featuring some of those interviews, some general reflections uh, from Aspen. But Ryan, it was a great two days. Uh, we were able to meet a lot of cool and interesting people. I completely agree. It was you know, well worth it for us. We had a lot of fun there, saw and met with a lot of interesting people, uh, sat through a lot of cool panels and, and keynote conversations. And so, uh, as Andre mentioned... We'll have some good stuff come out of that. Yeah, I mean, for me, like as soon as we walked in the door, we walked in right behind General Mark Milley and his staff. And then we actually managed to get to speak to him a bit afterwards uh, after his speech. And I thought for me, first time being in D.C. in 10 years, that was a pretty cool experience meeting the chairman of the Joint Chiefs within 24 hours. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was it was a good time. Um, uh, but we are here to talk on this wonderful Monday uh, morning about Afghanistan, Andre. Yes. So who do we have joining us? So we have one of the best people we could possibly talk to about the situation in Afghanistan, drawdown and so on, General David Petraeus, who served as the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, was the commander of the International Security Assistance Force, and was also commander of the U.S. Central Command. Uh, General Petraeus was very well known for his leadership in, during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he has been very vocal about his criticisms of the Afghanistan drawdown, very vocal. And uh, we were privileged to be able to talk to him uh, over the course of around 35 minutes to talk about how he sees the situation in Afghanistan now and uh, what he looks to in the future. Yeah, so we, we kind of charted from the, his perspective as, as a commander on the ground there and leading uh, U.S. forces, basically what the situation was like for them, and then kind of going through time of getting an understanding of really where where we got things right, where we got things wrong. But really, the, the focal point of today's conversation is the actual withdrawal from Afghanistan, the implications of it. And as Andre, I mean, the, the general certainly has been a, a huge critic of it. And you and I have been, have been talking about the withdrawal from Afghanistan and just Afghanistan as in the larger picture for really since the beginning of this podcast. And so it was very nice to get uh, General Petraeus's perspective as someone who did lead U.S. troops on the ground in Afghanistan and is one of the most accomplished and celebrated military leaders of you know modern times. And so, again, someone also with a very interesting perspective from both the CIA uh, as he was director, uh, but also uh, from the, the military side as well. Uh, really, I think some some major takeaways, and I'll, I'll just kind of foreshadow some things to kind of pay attempt pay attention to. Uh, I'd say what what was most interesting for me is how he described the Taliban's ability to retake Afghanistan as the U.S. was preparing to withdraw, and actually after the withdrawal, uh, because there's a lot of reporting that went on to kind of showcase what really occurred on the ground, and his explanation of it as someone who served in Afghanistan was is quite um useful for me. Yeah, absolutely. And Ryan, we did actually have General Petraeus <clears throat> on the program around November 2020, actually, I think a complete year ago. And a lot of what we discussed in that episode 
foreshadowed, I think, certainly in his criticism. So the drawdown, I mean, almost a year later, and we refer to certain things that we talked about at length in that episode back in November 2020. I think one was sustainable, sustained commitments, this idea of blood and treasure and those relevant costs. So I would recommend you all, and the general also, I think, pointed this out during the interview, to go and listen to the 2020 episode to learn a bit more about some of these ideas that we've elucidated from. If you want to get a better understanding of that aspect in particular, I'd, I'd hit pause and go listen to that episode first, and then come back to this one to get an understanding about the withdrawal and his perspective there. Um, but Andre, uh, we'll, we'll pick it up at the end after this a wonderful conversation with General Petraeus. Uh, and here is now our conversation with General David Petraeus. So, General, broadly speaking, how would you characterize the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? Was it inevitable? Well, I guess it was inevitable at some point. Uh, but just as um, many, many decades after World War II and after the Korean War, we still have tens of thousands of troops deployed uh, in the Asia-Pacific region and on the Korean Peninsula, uh, it wasn't inevitable that it had to happen uh, in 2021. Um, as I've offered, and as a number of others have offered, there were alternatives. Um, they would have been continued uh, frustration in certain ways. Uh, you, you know, you really had to accept, I think, uh, after 20 years that Afghanistan was not a war that we could win uh, or even achieve the kinds of very significant uh, results that we uh, did actually achieve during the surge in Iraq, where we drove violence down by 85%. And then it stayed down for another three and a half years until tragically, shortly after our combat forces were withdrawn, uh, the prime minister pursued very ruinous sectarian activities that unraveled the situation. But we know why that happened. We know how it happened and so forth. Um, Afghanistan just is very, very different from Iraq. And I pointed that out to Secretary Rumsfeld, in fact, when I did an assessment at his request uh, of the situation in Afghanistan on the way home from my three-star tour in Iraq. And the very first slide in that briefing was titled, Afghanistan does not equal Iraq. And it laid out all the ways in which you could compare and contrast. And even though at that time, and even later on, the levels of violence in Afghanistan were never remotely what they were in Iraq at the height of that war, um, you still had features uh, that made it much more challenging than Iraq, uh, the biggest of those being that the enemies uh, that were causing so much problem and loss of life and so forth in Afghanistan were essentially beyond our reach. The, the Afghan Taliban headquarters was outside Quetta, the capital of the Pakistani province of Baluchistan. The Haqqani network or Haqqani Taliban uh, have their headquarters in North Waziristan, ironically, not far from a Pakistani army headquarters, uh, but clearly not a situation that the Pakistanis uh, felt they had the capabilities or perhaps in some ways the will uh, to deal with. And then a variety of the other groups, uh, including Al-Qaeda, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, now the Islamic State, uh, again, many of them have a headquarters that is uh, on Pakistani soil. And we didn't have the authority to go after that, but for the most part, occasionally there were some operations that were uh, permitted, but by and large, they were beyond our reach. So you could never put the kind of pressure on the senior leaders, the truly irreconcilables uh, that we were able to establish uh, in Iraq. Beyond that, Afghanistan has virtually no money. Iraq had, you know, you could get $100 billion in 
oil revenue when the price was over $105 a barrel as it was at various points when I was in Iraq or at US Central Command or at the agency. Um, and Iraq has a relatively educated population, Afghanistan, quite a high level of uh, illiteracy to the point that we had to actually teach basic skills to new soldiers and police before you could actually do basic military or police training. Uh, vast country, shadow of the Hindu Kush, uh, that defines the spine of the country, limited infrastructure, uh, you know, basically one ring road that essentially goes around most of the country. It doesn't even connect in, in one place in the northwest part of Afghanistan. Uh, and then a variety of other challenges and issues uh, that make it very, very different from Iraq and therefore make it a, a reality in which you have to just acknowledge that we can't win this, but we can manage it. Um, and I would contend uh, in the wake of the withdrawal um, that what has resulted uh, is not only heartbreaking uh, and tragic, but I would have to describe it as disastrous as well. The, the idea that the Taliban, a group that wants to take the country back to a seventh century interpretation of Islam, um, wants to very, very substantially uh, curtail the abilities of 50% of the population to go to school, go to college, uh, have a job, contribute to the economy and so forth. Um, and of course, uh, the summary justice and a variety of other uh, issues that the Taliban bring back to government with them, not to mention the fact that they seem not very capable of governance. Uh, they're also broke uh, because of course their reserves are frozen around the world, no access to IMF or World Bank funding. So what you have is the prospect uh, for a country that was nearly 40 million people uh, before the the exodus that began earlier this year when it was clear that the U.S. was going to leave, uh, you have a country that is going to be a true humanitarian catastrophe. And the idea that we just finally, in a sense, pulled our forces out, coalition forces, the contractors that kept the critical air force going and so forth, um, that the Taliban would take over, the violence would go away. Uh, and yes, we don't like the way they've abridged rights of many of their citizens or some of the, again, the way they, they're, they're governing uh, the lack of freedoms that were enjoyed by Afghans over the past 20 years, et cetera, but that at least it would be peaceful, that doesn't even seem to be uh, the reality right now either. The Islamic State is carrying out horrific attacks. They're actually finding recruits among those the Taliban is pursuing unwisely, uh, who are part of the former government and the former security forces. Um, there's fighting between the elements of the Taliban, the Haqqani network and the Afghan Taliban, uh, one group's leader is in Kandahar, the other is in uh, Kabul. The government is still in the process of just getting organized. There's no new constitution or anything else. And then there are various resistance elements that are springing up around the country as well. And, and I think predictably, the Taliban are finding that it's much harder to be a counterinsurgent uh, than it is, and to govern and to provide basic services and all the rest of that, uh, than it is to be an insurgent, just pick your time for attacks and then go back into the hills. Uh, so I, I fear that uh, Afghanistan has a very, very bleak future. Uh, this winter is going to be a very harsh one in more ways than just the temperature and the snow and the typical uh, frigid uh, air of Afghanistan. Uh, it's going to be uh, one in which individuals will be on the brink of starvation. 
because Afghanistan had the worst harvest in 35 years, a uh, terrible drought. And you put all of that together um, in the ineptitude that the Taliban is demonstrating so far and actually governing and, and so forth. Uh, and you see the prospect for something that is going to be very dire. And ironically, uh, I think the Pakistani leaders who were actually applauding a bit in Islamabad as the Taliban took over uh, will rue the day that that happened because that country is going to be the one most affected by the flow of refugees uh, and people who are just fleeing starvation and privation um, to try to get to anywhere that has just a prospect of a slightly better life. General Petraeus, uh, I mean, you've provided alternatives and your alternative to the situation in Afghanistan was this sustained, sustainable commitment. Uh, and so that we've talked about that in our previous podcast episodes with you. So I'll let our listeners go back to those for more details. But what I want to do is talk about the Afghan army and the reliance uh, of the Afghan army on U.S. armed forces and U.S.-based contractors. And so what were the, the realities on the ground of the true capabilities of the Afghan army? And did we prepare for an outcome where when we left, if we ever left, would the Afghan army and the Afghan security forces be able to stand up on their own? Well, there's no question that the Afghan army uh, was dependent, highly dependent um, on reinforcements. Uh, again, there's no real alternative to the structure that was developed. I mean, some of my old comrades in, in uniform, not from the army, but you know, said we should have made them more like insurgents. Well, they're not insurgents, they're counterinsurgents. They actually have to protect all around the country, major population centers and critical infrastructure. I mean, that's not optional. And that requires just basic soldiers. Police can help with that, but basically it's the soldiers that do that. There were roughly 100,000 of them. Again, this number of 300,000 is more than a bit inflated, not just because of the inflated roles, uh, you know, and some ghost soldiers and police and so forth, uh, but because about 150,000 of those are actually police, border police, customs police, a whole variety of other security services that don't really defend, do what we're talking about here, which is defend population centers and critical infrastructure. You have to defend that. Beyond that, you then have a, and, and that's basic. Again, this, is, this doesn't take, um, you know, super soldiers, this takes people who are going to be on a checkpoint and going to check again, ID cards, whatever it may be, uh, and repulse, or at least fight uh, any kinds of incursions by the insurgents, the extremists, the terrorists. And you then have a very substantial reserve, it was roughly about 30,000, quite well trained, the commandos of various types, trained by our special operations forces. But the key for them is air mobility, because they are generally located in central places around the country. Uh, and when these forces are hit out on the periphery, uh, these reaction forces get on US provided helicopters or even US provided planes and fly out to the, that location or an airfield from which they fly uh, out to the actual combat area. And those that air mobility also provides uh, emergency resupply. It provides aero medevac and it provides close air support. And again, there's no real alternative to that kind of structure. Um, I don't know how you could have. Now, there are ways. I personally was not in favor of uh, US-provided uh, helicopters and planes. When I was the commander, privileged to be the commander in uh, 2010, 2011, and before that central command, we were still providing essentially Russian or Soviet model because they knew how to work on that. It's much simpler. 
it's not anywhere near as sophisticated as what the US provided. Now, what we did provide is extraordinary in its capabilities. The problem is that it required 18,000 contractors to keep it all going. And in fact, it was when I heard that we were not only withdrawing our forces, 25 to 3,500, then the coalition forces of 8,500 were going to withdraw, and then the 18,000 contractors that did an awful lot of the maintenance of this, working to support Afghan mechanics uh, who are learning. But this is very, very, uh, very difficult equipment on which to, to do operations and maintenance. And when I heard that was going away, that was when several months prior to the collapse, I said I feared a psychological collapse of the Afghan forces because they would realize at some point that they're out on these defensive missions and there's no one coming to the rescue. And if that actually happens, then you have an epidemic of what we actually saw, uh, which is a collapse of the forces. It's a cutting deals with the Taliban. It's what Afghans have done uh, over the centuries. They, they, at, at certain points in these kinds of fights, uh, they have to be professional chameleons to stay alive. Um, and they clearly figured out the Taliban quite skillfully, by the way, attacked multiple locations simultaneously. Remember, originally they hit uh, in Baglan and Kunduz. The Afghans responded impressively to that with this concept that I described. They hit Kandahar, uh, Herat. There was fighting there uh, for several days in Kandahar, in particular. The commandos did a very good job. But then the Taliban hit simultaneously around the country. Our uh, maintenance uh, contractors were gone. The operational readiness started to degrade. And what happened in the end was these forces realized why continue to fight their, the local political leaders were text messaging with the Taliban. And of course the Taliban ranks were swollen by some 5,000 uh, Taliban fighters whom we'd insisted that the government release as part of the agreement that we made with the Taliban for us to leave. Uh, which is, you know, a diplomatic agreement that I think has to be the worst in certainly recent memory. So all of this together leads to the kind of collapse we saw. But we should keep in mind that this, this narrative that the Afghans won't fight is just not true. Um, some 26 or 27 times as many uh, Afghan soldiers and police died uh, as have Americans. Um, they took very, very tough casualties over the years, especially in recent years as we transitioned the frontline fighting to them, which, of course, is one of the reasons. And I, the, the agreement with the Taliban is another as well. But among the reasons that we had not had a battlefield loss uh, in 18 months uh, prior to that tragic suicide bombing at the entry control point at Kabul International Airport during the final days of that very chaotic albeit impressive logistical feat, uh, the withdrawal uh, of, you know, 120 some thousand uh, Afghans in a very short period of time. So on this topic of the Afghan army, uh, some have criticized the U.S. armed forces and the ISAF's efforts to, quote, army build, uh, comparing it unfavorably to the CIA's work with the Northern Alliance in the onset of the initial Afghan war. So, I mean, while the two situations are, of course, inherently different, given that one is more institutional and the other is more so militia oriented, uh, were there any aspects slash characteristics of the CIA's work with locals in those first months in 2001 and 2002 that may have gotten, quote, lost in the shuffle 
as the USAF, the US Armed Forces, work to build and train the Afghan army, did we were we necessarily attuned with the intricacies of Afghan uh, culture and society within the armed forces? Undoubtedly, there are myriad um, shortcomings, mistakes, uh, missteps that we made along the way uh, in the nation building aspect of this. And by the way, that's another one that folks tend to say, well, it all went down, you know, when we started nation building. Well, if you don't do nation building, if you don't help build host nation security forces and host nation institutions, to whom do you hand off tasks that you are performing um, when you've taken down the regime of a country and you own it? Uh, so that was inescapable. Now, were there uh, items that we could have done better? Absolutely. There's a whole host of different issues. Uh, uh, we overbuilt at various times. We threw too much money at certain problems. We um, we, we were very, very slow to get to the Afghan local police initiative that we began in two, late 2010, uh, when I was privileged to be the commander, too slow to have a joint task force on anti-corruption. Again, there's a whole host of lessons learned, much of which can be traced to the fact that after we took down the regime uh, in late 2001 uh, and the early days in 2002, we started to shift focus to Iraq, and we then began uh, a situation that Admiral Mike Mullen, the chairman, the great chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the George C. Marshall of his generation, I believe, um, who used to say that in Iraq, we do what we must, and in Afghanistan, we do what we can. And of course, I was part of that problem because I was a two-star, three-star, four-star commander in Iraq, and especially as the commander of the surge, I uh, was asking President Bush and, and our senior policymakers, Secretary Gates and Admiral Mullen, uh, for everything they could possibly give us so that we could turn around a situation there that was on the brink of a full-blown Sunni-Shia civil war. Now, as to you know what the CIA and really the special forces as well, fifth group and the CIA did together uh, on the ground, the, the horse soldiers and so forth, look, this is a completely different situation. There we are, again, in a sense, the insurgents uh, and the Taliban were the counterinsurgents. They were defending uh, a country that they were governing and the bulk of which uh, they controlled uh, with some exception, uh, the Ponchir Valley and some places in the North and the Northern Alliance. And we did it with extraordinary air power um, and did it in a sense where the Taliban really didn't understand how to uh, deal with this extraordinary air power that we had. Um, and what the Northern Alliance did generally is it would force the Taliban to mass by threatening some key location, just as the Taliban did, uh, again, more recently. Um, and then when they mass, of course, we could clobber them with our uh, air support and precision uh, airstrikes. Um, and again, it, it, once you set that up and once you have willing forces on the ground, uh, that's a pretty difficult situation for the Taliban to defend against. They got clobbered, they collapsed, they streamed into uh, Pakistan along with um, Osama bin Laden and, and Al-Qaeda. And then it took them years to regroup. Um, but again, what we were using in that case was, again, uh, essentially uh, ethnic uh, elements. And of course, you can't govern a country uh, with ethnic elements, uh, especially not if they represent a minority of the population rather than the majority. The Taliban, of course, being Pashtu uh, and the Northern Alliance, different groupings of Uzbek, Turkmen, Tajik, uh, and, and so forth. So uh, again, it's just, that's not a, a useful analogy. 
Um, there were other efforts uh, that we did do that are more useful, and I wish we could have sustained. The Afghan local police program was one of those. There were also reportedly um, efforts by the agency to have, in a sense, surrogate forces that were, again, much more local, much more coherent and cohesive in terms of ethnic and sectarian makeup. Uh, and they actually did quite well. The problem was that we couldn't sustain the Afghan local police program once the drawdown hit a certain point. And we had to start withdrawing the special forces teams that were the glue that really held that together and provided the oversight for these local forces. Um, it did such a good job and, and much better, frankly, than when they were handed off to provincial police chiefs, who in many cases uh, were rotating through positions and and had their own approach and own angle uh, to that. So um, again, yes, there's lots to be learned from really all of these different experiences. Um, there'll be a process over the years that lie ahead to distill those lessons, uh, to identify the mistakes, missteps, shortcomings, uh, and so forth. Uh, the Special Inspector General uh, for Afghanistan, <laughs> I think has done an admirable job of identifying every shortcoming that we've had uh, over the years, um, and they have not been reticent about putting those out there. Uh, again, then you have to go back and sift through these, uh, and and really with a considerable degree of granularity and understanding of again local circumstances, uh, you've got to then put that together. One last comment uh, before uh, tossing it back to you for the next question, and that is that well, you know, we didn't understand the country. We tried to impose a you know, government of Switzerland on Afghanistan, a country that has never had real strong central leadership in the rest. And again, certainly there were shortcomings. Certainly, certainly there were missteps in this area and mistakes as well. But by and large, we had a pretty good understanding of you know, how the system used to work or could work. If you look at the rule of law, for example, um, we sought to establish what was called the Hukuk system. Uh, where you have essentially almost a paralegal uh, out in a district, um, which is the, the element below a province. Uh, and in those districts, that individual would record deeds and other uh, legal documents and so forth, which would then be also sent to the provincial rule of law uh, entity uh, for safekeeping and for records and, and all the rest of that. So again, we tried to actually have an understanding of how Afghanistan used to work, could work, um, should work perhaps in, in coordination with our partners, needless to say. And that's what we worked together with them to try to establish. Um, again, we had no illusions that we could turn it into Switzerland in 10 or 20 years, even 30 years or less. Um, but you know, I would submit that for all of its many imperfections, and they were many, and they were maddening and frustrating, uh, that various Afghan governments over the years, under President Karzai, under President Ashraf Ghani, um, for the bulk of the population, it's not to say there aren't some pockets uh, out in the rural areas and conservative areas that actually celebrated the Taliban's return because of a variety of reasons, many of them having to do with the kind of corruption and uh, bureaucracy and ineptitude that you did see in some areas under the Afghan government. But by and large, if you look at the major population centers and so forth, the life of Afghans uh, under that government was incomparably better, freer, um, more prosperous uh, than 
it is going to be, and it already is, under the Taliban, which is why, of course, hundreds of thousands, if not already over a million, have already left, and many, many hundreds of thousands are still trying to leave. General Petraeus, it, it seems like in the lead up into the withdrawal, public opinion for the war in Afghanistan was, I mean, very low. Most Americans wanted the U.S. government to withdraw from Afghanistan. And so was there a, a communication problem within the U.S. military, within the foreign policy community about why we were in Afghanistan, what that did to bolster U.S. interests, not only in the country, but also in the region? And so when we're looking kind of backwards in time to kind of not necessarily justify, but maybe explain to the American people and to our allies around the world, what was the mission in Afghanistan? And did we accomplish it over time? Uh, just because, I mean, President Biden has experienced extremely low approval ratings and has gotten a lot of flack because of the way in which he withdrew. Well, I mean, first of all, a lot of this has to do with how you ask a question. I mean, if you say, should we end a war? Of course we should end a war. I mean, and by the way, no one wants to end endless wars more than those who actually fought in them and those who actually understand the sacrifice and loss and, and hardship that results uh, from that. Uh, you know, the commanders who have literally written the, the letters of condolence home every single night uh, and so forth. So, of course, we should end endless wars. The question is, how do you end it? Uh, is it the right time to end it? What should be the conditions uh, that obtain before you end it and, and so forth? So the truth is that many Americans didn't even realize we still had forces in Afghanistan. You know, we hadn't had a battlefield loss in 18 months. Uh, the cost was as I have argued and did on your, our previous episode, sustainable in terms of the expenditure of, of our blood and, and treasure. Um, and the situation was, again, I think manageable. Now, there will be others who will say, yes, but if we reneged on the agreement that the previous administration made with the Taliban, uh, which, of course, President Biden then uh, adopted and extended the timeline for, um, that the Taliban would be back fierce and all the rest of that. Well, look, we could you know, with you add more drones, we were no longer on the front lines. The Afghans were fighting on the front lines. And if we provided the advice, assistance and enablers, drones, precision air attack, uh, the, the joint tactical air controllers who can actually bring that to bear very close to friendly troops, uh, the logistics, the, the funding and all the rest of that, you could have a sustainable situation. It would never be satisfactory in all ways. It would be Again, certain aspects of it, maddening, frustrating. <clears throat> but I would argue that that was a better alternative with hindsight than what we have seen come to pass and what we will see come to pass as this humanitarian catastrophe deepens uh, and does not allow the world to take its eyes off Afghanistan, something that I think many in Washington thought, okay, we'll just get out. They can have it. We'll keep after the extremists that might uh, flock there. <clears throat> but we need to focus uh, rightly on the Indo-Pacific, working with all our allies and partners together to develop a whole of government, coherent, comprehensive approach uh, to China, <clears throat> which is exactly right. But, you know, 3,500 troops and not many of those are the kinds that necessarily are going to <clears throat> be that crucial in, a, in an air and maritime theater like the Indo-Pacific. <clears throat> so. That's the, the situation, I think. And again, if you ask the question, <clears throat> should we leave and allow Afghanistan to fall to the Taliban and a group that's going to abridge the rights of women and uh, experience a humanitarian catastrophe, I suspect the American people would probably uh, say no. 
Um, so, as I said, a lot of this does have to do with, again, how you ask the question, how you frame it, um, and how you explain it. And certainly there could have been a, a better job of explanation along the way. Uh, I did explain that, you know, as an example, during the time I was privileged to be commander and really throughout the 20 years of our involvement, the most important mission was to ensure that Al-Qaeda could not reestablish the kind of sanctuary it had when the 9-11 attacks were planned on Afghan soil under the rule of the Taliban. And we did prevent that. And there's certainly been no more 9-11 attacks uh, in the United States. In fact, in the past 20 years, maybe 100 or so uh, American citizens have been killed by Islamist extremists. Uh, obviously, many other categories that, that dwarf that particular number. Then we had, saw the Islamic State coming. Uh, we had to also ensure the same is true with them. Um, and then, you know, the mission when I was the commander was to halt the momentum of the Taliban. They were on the march at that time to roll it back in critical areas, to accelerate the development of the Afghan security forces and to create processes, um, measures, conditions and so forth uh, in a policy sense for the transition of tasks from coalition forces to Afghan forces and institutions and then to actually begin that. We actually did do all of that in 2010 and 2011. It was by no means the kind of dramatic, you know, 85% reduction in violence that we achieved during the surge in Iraq. But I told Congress we weren't going to be able to achieve that because, as I explained uh, in response to the very first question, Afghanistan just is not Iraq. It is vastly more difficult in almost every area of comparison, even though the violence in Iraq was vastly higher than that in Afghanistan uh, at the peak of that particular war. So, you know, that's how I think you have to lay that out. Um, and if you can continue to make a reasonably compelling case, um, as long as it is sustainable in the expenditure of blood and treasure, I suspect the American people um, would be frankly somewhat ambivalent about 3,500 troops and I don't know, 20, 25 billion at most out of a $730 billion defense budget um, is something that again, presumably would be worth continuing to achieve uh, the objectives that I laid out for you. While noting, again, there's a, a very, very frustrating aspect to this um, that you can't, quote, win, uh, that you can't, I can't define that it will take five, 10, or even 20 years more. Um, you just have to accept that. You have to explain that. You have to acknowledge that, you know, we have had tens of thousands of troops in other uh, locations uh, around the world, certainly not in real combat the way Afghanistan was, but we sustained those because it was in our national interest to do so. And you'd have to make a fairly compelling case that that is the situation in Afghanistan as well. But I think we have time for just one more. Yes. So General, you've been quite outspoken on helping those who helped us in Afghanistan. Uh, are you satisfied with the current efforts made by the administration to get those Afghans who helped us out of the country? And what can regular citizens like us do to help some of these folks out? Well, I think we have not met the moral obligation that we have uh, to those who are literally left behind. Uh, I'm on the board of, no, of advisors of No One Left Behind, an organization that focuses on a critical subset of this population. Uh, which is those who earned the right to a special immigrant visa for the United States for themselves and their family members who were put at risk by those individuals serving on the ground as a battlefield interpreter with our troops for, for some two years. Uh, 
you can't really overstate how important those individuals have been over the years to our men and women on the ground. Our son was a rifle platoon leader. His Terp was with him. And that Terp had done the equivalent of multiple tours in Afghanistan because they just stayed in essentially in combat out on the ground under a rucksack, sharing risk and hardship uh, with our forces. And again, we have an obligation to them. No one left behind has a list of 35,000 of these individuals plus their family members. Uh, and there are many, many more. These are the ones who have just initiated the process for the special immigrant visa. Now, of course, the priority has to be our American citizens. And apparently there are still uh, American citizens there, whether it's as much as 200 uh, or whatever. There are green card holders. They should have priority. But that next category should be special immigrant visas. But beyond that, there are tens if there are hundreds of thousands, probably of others um, who, because of their service, uh, again, supporting us, working with us uh, in the security forces, uh, in some cases, even in the government, uh, have jeopardized their own safety and that of their, their, their family members. Um, and the, the trickle out of Afghanistan, that is the current uh, pace of evacuations, uh, will not make a dent in these populations. Um, so obviously, I, I don't feel that we are doing what we owe to those. Uh, and we certainly haven't lived up to the, the words and the rhetoric uh, that we heard uh, during the evacuation about how we're going to take care of all these individuals uh, whose safety is at risk. Um, there are some real world challenges to this. The, a lot of it has to go through a couple of so-called lily pads, the most important one uh, at Al-Udid Air Base uh, in, outside Doha, Qatar, which you all know well. Uh, and so you can only put more people in there once people have been cleared out. Uh, and we don't want to have an overcrowding situation at U.S. military bases in the United States again, as we did in those sort of early chaotic days uh, of the evacuation and, and following the evacuation. Um, but clearly, we have to do a better job. Uh, this does have ramification. I mean, it's, it's, it's both the moral obligation that we should feel very intensely, but also the implications for the future. I mean, who else is going to want to work with the United States in the future if they see that this is how we treated those who worked with us in our last in endeavor? And indeed, there are ramifications for other situations because this does allow potential adversaries to say that, well, um, you know, what kind of partner are them? Are they? Can you really depend on the United States? Uh, is this a power uh, that is in, in decline, this kind of thing? And I, it's incumbent on us to show that that is not true. I believe it is not true. Uh, I believe very, very fervently uh, in, in our great country and the freedoms that we enjoy, uh, the system for all of its flaws and imperfections. But uh, again, we have to show that to the rest of the world. Uh, and one of, element of that is to meet this obligation that we have to those who have until now been left behind. How can citizens help? One way is to donate to no one left behind. Uh, very easy to find on the internet. Um, and then there are other organizations also out there that have uh, worked very hard to help with essentially resettlement efforts of various types. And again, those are the organizations I think that Americans can can support uh, as we do try to meet this very, very important obligation uh, to those who are still left behind in Afghanistan. And with that, General Petraeus, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, and thank you for your service, sir. It's always a pleasure. The pleasure is mine and the service was a privilege. Thank you.
Ryan, there was a lot of things that I found intriguing about that interview. I think particularly was the general's forthrightness with which he was criticizing parts of the the drawdown. Uh, I, th- I think one thing that really stood out to me was he quoted, I think, uh, one of his superiors when we entered into Iraq, where, quote, in Iraq, we do what we must. In Afghanistan, we do what we can. And the general said he was very much a part of that issue because the war in Iraq started to drag out resources from the war in Afghanistan. We were not paying attention to Afghanistan or not necessarily allocating the relevant resources as we should have, as we should have. And I feel like that that is one of the explainers of what went wrong over the years. Yeah, so I mean, General Petraeus has been talking about ending endless wars for quite some time. And he says, um, quite honestly, that there's no one no one more wants to end endless wars than those who serve and that those who lead uh, American troops uh, in combat. And so one of the the interesting aspects of this is his ability to kind of explain and recognize that the, the, uh, the United States engaging in these different theaters and in these different campaigns does cause significant challenges for our ability to accomplish missions. And, and I think Afghanistan is a perfect example. Like, I mean, while the president, President Biden, said that we accomplished our core mission in Afghanistan. What General Petraeus does recognize is that we also picked up another mission in Afghanistan that was nation building. Mission creep. Yeah, it was, there was mission creep. We, we picked up this other uh, mission of nation building in Afghanistan. And so because we did that, I mean, he, he then talked about the, the necessity of us staying there and ensuring that there was enough capacity of the Afghan forces, because if we were to leave, and we certainly left, the consequences would be grave, and we've seen them. I mean, the, the Taliban have just taken the country with ease and is completely reverted to pre-U.S. Uh, invasion. Yeah, and I mean, General Petraeus said, I mean, while the current government did have problems, or the previous government did have problems, uh, life was ostensibly better. Women had access to education. People were doing r- much better than under the Taliban government. But uh, there was a huge reliance on a lot of U.S. aid, there was a huge reliance on contractors, right? There was a huge reliance on contractors. Yeah, I, I think something that maybe most people don't um, have experience with or don't understand because it's just such such a part of the blob that is the foreign policy and national security world is that contractors do so much of the work, particularly in on U.S. missions abroad. So whether it's engaging in in war fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, or if it's just you know U.S. missions abroad, whether through USAID where there's a lot of contractors or the State Department, they use a, a heavy emphasis on contracting. And so those are typically, you know, um, Americans and American companies that are sent abroad to do the work on behalf of the U.S. government. Uh, and in Afghanistan, they were doing a lot of the heavy lifting there, right? A lot of the servicing and ensuring that the, the Afghan security forces, the Afghan army was able to maintain and be equipped and, and carry out all the relevant tasks that they needed to do to have some sort of bureaucracy and system set up for, for success. Yeah, and, and I mean, uh, the general also definitely countered the point that the Afghans were not willing to fight. As he pointed out, the Afghan army suffered massive casualties fighting the Taliban and other militant groups over the last decade or so. And uh, But however, I mean, many of them, he used the phrase professional chameleons 
you have to be a professional chameleon in order to survive some of these fights, especially if some of these outcomes are going to be inevitable. As you said, some people were texting the Taliban. The Taliban, as you said, very acutely launched simultaneous attacks on multiple areas. And psychologically, how could you not fear for your life? You want to do what you can to survive to fight the next day. And I mean, their their orders, their ranks were sw- swelled by the 5,000 prisoners that were released, I think, by something that the U.S. pushed for during the negotiations. So I, I do think, Ryan, also another point I just want to make before we wrap up is uh, the general talked about no one left behind, an organization that's looking to help uh, many of those who were adversely affected by the Afghan war and and since the drawdown and so on, because he said that the current administration is not doing enough to help those who helped us and that, you know, working with no one left behind is one way in which we can help those who helped us in Afghanistan. Yeah, this is really crucial and something that I want to emphasize. Uh, There are thousands of individuals, whether they're those who directly helped us or the family members of those who helped the United States uh, in the war in Afghanistan, that they, they do deserve to be protected by the United States. I mean, without those individuals, more Americans would have died and the war would not have been as as successful during the actual campaign as it was. And so it, it is really so important that the United States takes in as many Afghan interpreters and, and people who work with, with U.S. personnel on the ground there and their families, because if they are left in Afghanistan, I mean, they, they will be killed. They will be tortured. They will be thrown in prison by the Taliban. It's inevitable. We're already seeing some of that happen right now, in fact. So, I mean, uh, it's a a very tragic situation in Afghanistan, but uh, General Petraeus' episode helps to sort of clarify, I think, certain things from his perspective. We are, of course, going to be talking about Afghanistan with some other great guests, maybe even get an Afghan voice uh, on the podcast as well, but we'll release details about all of those episodes as they release. All right. Well, thank you all very much for listening to this uh, week's episode. And as always, we'll see you next time.